morning and welcome to episode 745 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined not as always by Sam Miller, who's unavailable today, but by two Baseball Prospectus authors, Matt Trueblood and Craig Goldstein. Hey guys. Hey. Hello. And Matt and Craig are here to help me maintain my multiple of five recording schedule. So thanks for helping fuel my obsession instead of getting me treatment or something. You are both enabling me. It's one of the things I do best. (laughs) So uh, defensive shifts, huh? They really come back to bite you. They get you eliminated from postseason series. Been saying all year long, those shifts are going to get you knocked out of the NLDS. But they didn't listen. Yeah, it's it's good fuel for the uh, for the anti-shift crowd. It is. I guess who, who could possibly expect someone to do their job when they have to shift? <laughs> right. I guess you could say that the problem was that they didn't shift enough. Right. They didn't have enough shift practice. The Astros. Right. The Astros don't mess up shifting because they shift on every other play. So the problem was not shifting. Well, I and I thought the most interesting part was TBS showing Howie Kendrick telling, or I should say Howard Kendrick, <laughs> telling uh, Granky to cover third. Yeah, he just didn't do it. Yeah, Zach Granky just not a not a heads up, not yeah. a smart pitcher. You know, he just not not in the game. He doesn't think yeah. about baseball. If he were just a little more cerebral, he really <laughs> he should give the game more thought. He just kind of goes out there and throws, doesn't like to analyze anything. And occasionally that that really comes back to hurt you. So they'll learn from it. The Dodgers will learn from their many mistakes. I didn't write about that series, so I was just kind of casually watching it. And it just seemed like Daniel Murphy and Justin Turner were batting too much. Weren't they up too often? I wanted, I wanted to like check the lineup cards because those guys were up every inning. And they got a hit every time they came up. I mean, for my personal taste, Daniel Murphy was definitely batting too often. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so Matt is a Cubs fan and Craig is a Dodgers person. Yes. So one of you is happy and one of you is not so much. What did you guys think of the Juris Familia save celebration? I don't know whether to call it a pogo stick or a trampoline. It was kind of both. I just loved the just the rawness of it. That was It's fantastic. Guys, you know, the choreographed stuff is fun, but he just completely lost his mind. That's <laughs> yeah, phenomenal. I agree. Yeah, like maybe he even had a elaborate plan worked out, but in the moment, <laughs> it just got swept away by the desire to jump up and down. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I, I thought the, um, I mean, it kind of reminded me of the, they're all planned now, but when, when tennis players win a, a major or, you know, a slam, mm-hmm. they just jump up and down and then fall on their knees and like now they all do it automatically because i feel like it's tradition uh-huh. but it kind of reminded me of the the origins of that when people were just so excited they didn't know what to do with themselves so they jumped or fell i mean he didn't fall but it was it was very childlike and i like it when i came into the league tennis players would just walk up to the net silently and shake hands and leave the court <laughs> that's the way it was done that's that's the way so I like civil, to see it So done. civilized. Yeah. So we're going to talk about these series. Do you guys have any anything to say about the Mets-Dodgers Game 5 that we haven't said about pogo sticks and shifts and Zach Granke not being a cerebral pitcher? 
I thought Terry Collins did a nice job of managing, or at least coming into the game, it seemed like he should only use those three pitchers and there was no reason to use any other pitcher. But a lot of managers would find a reason to use another pitcher somehow, I think. But the fact that he just stuck with them, and as we were just saying before we started recording, Cindergard pitched about as much as DeGrom did because he was up for innings at a time. So maybe that wasn't perfect, but at the same time, you understand why you would want a guy ready to go the whole time. Problem was, it was a starter who's not used to doing that, but he looked fine and he was effective and it worked. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I was online, you know, throughout the game and I think what most people were reacting to was why DeGrom was in the game as long as he was more than uh, anything else. Yeah. Just that it seemed, obviously that first inning was was a little rough, but the I think the Dodgers had runners in scoring position the first five innings, and he kept working out of it, which was great. But you kind of thought, you know, maybe they'll go to a one-inning guy while Cindergard, you know, fully warms up because he's not used to doing it as a reliever, and and then you know go to him for multiple innings. I, the other wrinkle to me was using Cindergard for one inning and then Familia for two, which it's, yeah. I mean, Familia is used to pitching more than one inning. Um, he's a former starter, and I think he had more several one-plus innings stints this year. So it, it wasn't like they were pushing him a ton, but you kind of would have thought they'd go with Cindergard for two and, and leave him for just the one-inning stint if the, you know, if you're going to go in that order. Yeah. And if uh, if Wilmer Flores hadn't singled with two outs in the seventh, then Degrom probably would have pitched the eighth, right? He was he was on deck at least, and he wasn't pulled off until Flores singled. So if that was the case, Flores really probably did the Mets a big favor there. <laughs> I mean, the, the single didn't actually end up helping them, but just getting Degrom out of the game, evidently the only way that he was going to come out of the game was uh, a pretty big boost to the Mets. I just got a listener email asking me and Sam whether Andre Ethier should have let the ball drop. And since Sam is not here, I will ask you guys. I don't I don't know if you can really expect him to make that decision in that moment unless you'd <laughs> lined it up ahead of time. And that early in the game, I don't think you want to put that in the minds of your fielders to to lay off of that. I, I had no problem with him catching it. Yeah, I, I think I saw both Joe Sheehan and Keith Law kind of field questions about the same topic, and they kind of landed on different sides. I think someone ran the run expectancy, and it would have been better had he let it drop, but I agree with Matt. Like, you can't really expect an outfielder to necessarily process that, you know, while while the ball's in the air in that situation. And I also think, like Matt said, you know, it it was the fourth inning. I don't know that you're playing that, you know, you're walking that much of a tightrope in the fourth inning, even if it is an elimination game, I think you take the outs kind of when you can get it at that point. But, but I am a little ambivalent. If someone was, you know, making a hard line case that he should have let it drop. I, I think that's a fine approach too. can't believe that Andre Ether is still on the Dodgers. (laughs) That's my contribution. (laughs) Moderately good this year too. Yeah. But very weird. He's like the, I think he's the seventh longest tenured player on one team now because it was Utley. And so when Otley was traded, I think it became David Wright, and then Ryan Howard, and Joe Maurer, and Dustin Pedroia, and Ryan Zimmerman, and Yadier Molina, and then Andre Ether. I would not have expected that, given the volume of trade rumors that he has been involved in for what seems like several years. He's a survivor. Yeah, 
that contract is making it really hard for him to go anywhere else. Yeah. Although the fact that the trade rumor started like two weeks after that <laughs> gave him that terrible contract. That's my favorite part of the, the ether thing. <laughs> right. It's, he, he and Howard both, I feel like it's just, they wouldn't be there unless it, unless it was for their contracts. Yeah. And, uh, after his little run in with Mattingly last night, maybe that will be another reason for him not to be there, or maybe it will be a reason for Mattingly. Not <laughs> I was going to say, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> yeah, one of them will not be. <laughs> yeah. Maybe both. <laughs> yeah. Seems, seems like really good odds that one of them won't be. Yeah. All right, so we'll move on to championship series. Although, Craig, what happened to the Rangers? I thought they were the team of destiny. Yeah, well, you would. Let's you know. Let's go back to your spelling of huge before we get to that. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. <laughs> let's not. Yeah, I was, I was trying to figure out how to spell huge, like the huge, in an yeah. article for Grantland yesterday, and I spelled it USJ, and in retrospect, that was a mistake. And well, to her credit, my excellent editor, Mally Rubin, who is leaving Grantland today and has been my editor for two years and is wonderful and I will miss her and wish her the best. She did ask me whether I wanted to spell it that way. She asked if it was a typo and I said it wasn't a typo. And I think I ended up at that spelling because I wasn't sure if there was an accepted spelling, but I Googled it and there was an urban dictionary for that. And that's a really <laughs> reliable source. So I just went with that. And in retrospect, I probably should have gone with something that started with a Y. Well, I I have uh, the only reason I noticed it was because I don't have any idea how to spell it. I've thought about using it in in articles, and I just end up kind of rewriting the sentence because yeah. it's completely impossible. Like I, that sound I doesn't exist in the English alphabet. You can't really yeah, make the z sound. Yeah, I think people like Y O U Z H, mm-hmm. but but that's not it either. That's that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I, so like, what is it like U G E or something? Like, I don't know. Nah. It can't be U S H because that's gonna come out ush or ush. Right. right. I actually supported your choice. I, I like huh. it. I think yeah, it's just new. Like I I said in, on Twitter, like I don't know how I feel about it. I I think that's a pretty good compromise. But <laughs> I think most people on Twitter felt bad about it, from what I could tell. okay but yeah the uh the team of destiny i mean i i started calling them that in june for the rangers just because i i thought they had a kind of a weird outside chance of making the playoffs just because of their overall depth kind of and and obviously it did play out that way i thought they could make a big addition if they needed to because of what they had in the minors they also at the time i think beltray was hurt and um, a few other guys were were injured as well. And you know they they have the options. The guy the teams that we kind of don't always expect are the ones that, in my mind, have you know the depth to turn to a guy like Joey Gallo. I mean, not that he set the world on fire, but when he's like your third option in left field, and you're able to turn to someone with that kind of raw talent, I I think it says a lot about the depth you have in the upper minors and what you're able to do for the majors. And so you can kind of plug along in, in certain instances where otherwise your team just falls apart. And that's usually where seasons end. I think when you, you know, if you look at teams with less depth that, that encounter the same types of injuries, but you know, in the playoffs, you just, I don't, no one expected them to beat Toronto. I didn't, I didn't really, I did say, I thought they had a decent chance the first two games and, and three and four were going to be a major issue. And uh, you know, that, that, turned out to be true but yeah i 
I would have been interested to see them kind of go to Giovanni Gallardo on three days rest rather than Martin Perez or, or Matt. I guess it would have been Derek Holland's start mm-hmm. um, just because he, he really had nothing the entire season. All right, so let us turn our attention. I guess we can start with the NLCS. Matt is losing Addison Russell a significant blow to the Cubs, or is it like it was at the end of the series when Russell couldn't play and Javier Baez hit a home run anyway? Yeah. I still think it matters. I had Rob McCown pull month by month park adjusted defensive efficiency recently, uh-huh. which I have no idea whether that's reliable. <laughs> and Rob did not volunteer that information to me. <laughs> this could just be ridiculous. But the Cubs had a PADE of like eight something in September, wow. which was not only the highest, but like highest by any team in any month of this season by like 20%. Uh-huh. It was insane. And that's actually how it felt where they were just making plays all over the place. And Russell at shortstop was a huge part of that. He's he's a huge human, and he's not going to be a shortstop forever. But right now, he gets just a ridiculous first step. The ball is barely off the bat, and he's already where it's going to be. Well, not now. Um, not right now, because he has <laughs> well, <laughs> left hamstring. Pretty yes. slow first step. Baez is actually pretty good, too, and probably has a better arm than Russell but there's a definite downgrade there and they're both so sort of uneven in their offensive development at this point that I think it's I think it hurts but it's probably a very small hurt it's more about the ding to the depth where now Baez can't be a pinch hitter you know they might have to carry Jonathan Herrera so you know it it hurts but I don't think it's a big deal can I ask you Matt because and this might be something that's been addressed but I was a little I guess not surprised, but interested that Baez replaced uh, Russell at shortstop rather than Castro. Is is that just he's a better defensive? I know the arm is is an upgrade, but and I assume the range is is probably comparable. But I didn't know if that was debated at all anywhere. It's I mean it was always sort of touched on in passing and then moved past by pretty much everyone who's talked about it so far. From listening to Joe Madden, I think in his mind, Starlin Castro is a second baseman now and the second baseman because he's mm-hmm. he's turned the bat back on enough that he's a regular. He's gotten way, way, way more comfortable on double play turns, which was double plays and covering the base on throws uh, when runners were sealing. Stuff like that was really rough for the first couple weeks after he made that switch. But he started to smooth it out a lot. And I think they just think of him as that guy now. Baez is a better defensive shortstop. And Castro took that change so well that they don't have to worry about smoothing over his ego. That part's mm-hmm. already done. And I, I think they'd just as soon not drag it back up. So it was thought about and asked about. But I don't think I don't think they gave any serious consideration even to flipping Castro back. So which of these teams is handicapped more by rotation lineup issues as far as the Mets being forced to use two of their starters last night and not having much of a break between series. Is that a handicap for them? How does the rotation match up game by game? Well, the Mets have a deeper rotation, so that's one thing. But I think the lineup element does favor the Cubs. Mm-hmm. I wrote a thing for Wrigleyville about they've chosen to start Lester in game one and give Arietta a fifth day before he goes in game two, 
which I think was needed. He he really wasn't that bad in his last start. He just lost it for a couple of hitters and got burned. Mm-hmm. But Arietta hadn't started four straight times on four days rest all year until this last start. And I think they just feel like he prepares a lot in between starts. He's a workout freak. You know, Sam Sam's obsession with his <laughs> muscles. He earns that between starts. Right. And I think they think he can make really good use of an extra day of rest. And you move Lester up one day because he's it's been already you know more than a week since he started. So I think the Cubs are lined up exactly how they'd like to be and the Mets aren't. So from that angle, that favors the Cubs. Uh-huh. I mean, is there a clear favorite in this series? I think there's a favorite in the other series probably. And in this one, I guess, I mean, just the that the Cubs were by some measures, maybe the best team in the National League this year. So in that sense, they're a favorite over everyone. Is there any is there anything unique to the Mets-Cubs matchup that either favors one team or another? I, I think it is a fun series for us because we get to watch the Mets young pitching, although not all of the Mets young pitching is really that young <laughs> as we typically think of it. And we get to watch the Cubs' young hitters, although pitching is also a big part of the Cubs' success. So it's a fun matchup, definitely. And either way, we get to see a National League World Series team that we haven't seen in quite some time. So it's going to be fun. But is there anything to this that you think wouldn't be revealed by just, you know, looking at each team's true talent and saying that, this is their true talent and this is their true talent and it's not any different against this one particular team than it would be overall. Well, I was, I would just say, I mean, I think Matt hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, the de- where the depth uh, favors each team. But I think um, in terms of if the Cubs lineup is, if they can get to the Mets bullpen, that can be a huge advantage. And obviously, you know, the, the Mets have navigated thus far, but I think the the Cubs bullpen is they kind of have more options to cycle through um, in my mind than mm-hmm. the Mets do. And if they get into the bullpen in one of those games, that they could really kind of blow things out and maybe affect how how things go the rest of the series. Just because I mean the Mets' strength is obviously their rotation, but if they you know if one starter can't really go, you know if they have a four inning start, I think. It, it puts a lot of pressure on the next guy because their bullpen is really strong at the back, as we saw with Familia. And, and you know, Clippert is, is good too. But beyond those guys, it gets really dicey pretty quick. Yeah, and so that's almost exactly the note I was going to sound. The two things I'll say, the Cubs swept the regular season series. We're going to hear that a thousand times. Right. The way they did it actually was, at least in the four games that they played at Wrigley, they knocked out the Mets start early every game. And that that wasn't even this, you know, Kyle Schwarber wasn't in that version of the lineup. And it was, I think they caught John Neese and knocked him around, but it was Syndergaard, it was Harvey, it was DeGrom. You know, they, they did that once already. I do think that'll be a big key for the Cubs. The Cubs bullpen is deeper. You're not wrong about that. They're also a little... I don't want to say fragile, but like mm-hmm. Pedro Strope doesn't, there's a drastic difference between Pedro Strope with two days of rest before an appearance and Pedro Strope going on back-to-back days. And same for Hector Rondon. And so the Cubs have to be a little more careful. It's going to be important for them to get long starts from one of Lester and Arietta or both ideally, and not to have to 
go to some guy, you know, four times in five days. Because if that happens, the fourth and the third and the fourth appearances might be really rocky. Does either of you not think the Cubs are favored? Mets Twitter doesn't like me because I've been kind of low on them all year. Not, I'm not saying that they're like unprepared because the NL East is bad, but I think we overrate a little bit what they did down the stretch because of how bad the NL East was. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can't just look at the record and the run differential, which are insane for the Mets in the second half, without remembering that they played the Phillies and the openly tanking Braves and the Stantonless Marlins in so many of those games. Um, I think the Cubs are better by more than the surface stats show because of the difference between their schedules. So I think the Cubs will win pretty easily, but it's baseball, so... Yeah, I I would say the advantages to the Cubs, but in in a seven game series with the the four pitchers the Mets can run out there, I you know I don't I don't think it can be a huge advantage in any one particular game, even if they even if I'd give them the edge overall. Right, and Matt, uh, you probably heard Sam talking about Joe Madden the other day. Did you agree that he has been particularly adept in the playoffs, or has he? done things differently than he would have done during the regular season (laughs) he actually hasn't done anything differently which is Uh the the cool part (laughs) it's just always been good i loved that he with all year with hendrix and with hamill he just had a really short leash and Mm -hmm. he was not afraid to took hendrix out one out short of qualifying for a win and people kind of balked at that but he did that i don't know it had to be four or five times during the regular season too and hamill he got really aggressive with starting in early August when the Giants came to Wrigley Hamill got pulled I think at four and two thirds in the first game of that series and from then on it was like there was no hesitation from Madden to go get him no I think he's he's been good tactically all year I haven't seen any major changes in what he's done since the playoffs started but wasn't really looking for any either Okay, so ALCS which starts tonight and LCS starts tomorrow ALCS, I think Sam and I and just about everyone came into the postseason thinking that the Blue Jays were, if not the best team overall, then certainly the best team in the American League. And I don't think that anything happened in the Rangers series to change our minds. And so I would still expect the Blue Jays to win this series. But it's definitely a closer matchup than I thought the Rangers series would turn out to be, although that one obviously came down to the last couple innings. So I guess the most interesting aspect of the ALDS for both of these teams was what we learned or what we just got more confused about with their aces or with their nominal aces. So Johnny Cueto came into the series having struggled for a while, having sort of just scuffled and not looked like himself since really early August and having lost some velocity And it was sort of more of the same in Game 1, but in Game 5, he looked like Johnny Cueto again. And he not only threw two innings and allowed two runs, but also struck out eight and didn't walk anyone, and his velocity came way back. And, I mean, like, relative to, I think, his first start of October, he was averaging, like, 90 miles per hour with his fastball, roughly, and he was back up at about 935 in game five so he looked more like himself and it worked and he also switched up his pitch mix pretty significantly if brooks baseball is to be believed and it usually is i think he threw his fewest four seamers in a start and his most 
sinkers in a start, or by percentage at least, since June of 2014. And he's a guy who tinkers, obviously, from start to start and changes things up. But that was a, a pretty significant shift, and it worked. So you would think that he would stick with what worked so well. But he won't pitch again until Game 3, I guess. And because he is a guy who doesn't want to go on short rest or refuses to go on short rest, then he would be lined up for a Game 7 start. So he'll only start once in the series unless it does go 7. And then on the other side of things, the David Price puzzle that Sam and I have discussed a couple times, he's going to start Game 2 with Marco Estrada in Game 1 and Marcus Stroman in Game 3. So both of these teams are coming off five-game series where they had to use a very good pitcher in Game 5 who won't pitch until Game 3. So the series is going to be well underway before we see those guys. Is your opinion of David Price, because there, I guess there are two options. Either he is diminished in some way and the team knows about it, and so they didn't want him to start Game 5 and they don't have confidence in him, And if that's the case, then we should downgrade him too, probably. And then the other option is that there really isn't anything wrong with him. He just, you know, it was a strange managerial move. Maybe it was an overreaction to not having another lefty in the pen and just risk aversion and wanting to nail that one game down. And the Rangers had some lefties coming up and Price was the only left-handed option. So they just went with him and maybe it was over-managing or over-eager, but it doesn't actually reflect on price. So are you guys thinking of price any differently than you were 10 days ago? I I have some doubts, I guess, so, some more doubts than I would have. I mean, I know much is made of Price's postseason record, and I mean, after game one, I, I thought of him, you know, kind of like I think of how People talk about Clayton Kershaw and his postseason record and it's, you know, they're just great pitchers and it hasn't worked out and I wasn't worried about it. But, you know, that's it's just like you said, it's a very bizarre usage, but I still kind of think it's more the second thing that you said. Um, Or I, I think maybe it was just a little bit of panic and feeling that they needed that game and that they didn't have another lefty option. And if they let Texas you know, kind of creep back into it by getting hits with the lefty part of their order. It was just going to be, and even they, that maybe Gibbons felt like they couldn't kind of risk that momentum or whatever it is that you want to call it. Um, and that he just wanted to secure a game when he could secure it. And that Marcus Stroman is a good fallback option. And the difference between him and price is not big enough to risk not getting that game five. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, I think that's a little crazy. I don't know why you would do that in a seven, one game, but I guess if you're, if you are literally putting getting to game five above all else, then I, I guess it's on the justifiable scale, even if I'm, even if I'm not buying into it. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the point is that price might still very well be price, or at least there's no reason to think that he is suddenly a shell of his former self. I don't know what he could have done from a performance perspective to be downgraded from game one starter in that series to game four mop-up man. So I'm assuming that it wasn't something like, you know, he came to Gibbons after game one and said, hey, I'm 
my shoulder's sore or something, you know, I mean, it could have been something like that. And if it is, then maybe he won't be as effective. But I think it's possible to assume that he is still David Price. And I don't know, maybe he's maybe he's fatigued. He's worked a lot this year, but he's still the guy we thought he was. He's also a very like team oriented guy. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, I think he said this publicly, but, you know, he was like, I will do whatever it is that the team wants me to do, whether it's relieve, whether it's throw on back-to-back days, whatever it is. And so he might have just said, you know, it might be something where he was in Gibbons' ear and just be like, look, we don't have a lefty, use me. Like, yeah. use me, let's get to game five. You know, right. and, and if he's saying that over and over again, you know, it, it's probably the manager's responsibility not not to necessarily be swayed by that. But mm-hmm. it's also, you know, I, I can understand psychologically being swayed by uh, you know a guy with Price's career resume and his kind of enthusiasm you know wanting to help the team and giving him the chance to do it in that aspect yeah speaking of momentum I think both ALDSs were a pretty good argument against Against, it being a major factor (laughs) I mean the Rangers went up two nothing that's major momentum and they lost three straight and then the Astros were six outs away from winning with a four-run lead after having just scored a bunch of runs, which is seemingly lots of momentum. And they gave up five in an inning, and they lost. So not a whole lot of momentum working there. Um, I, I, I almost didn't say it because I, right. I knew what I was saying. But. <laughs> well, we can still it's still a word. We can use it to describe <laughs> like the motion of objects, that sort of thing. It has, a, it has a, other meanings. So... What you said about the Cubs getting into the Mets bullpen and being suited to do that seems like it also applies to the Blue Jays. And getting into the Royals bullpen is obviously not a thing that anyone wants to do. (laughs) But if you can get into the Royals bullpen with the lead, that's a good thing. And then you can just have Davis and Herrera and Madsen be guys who are trying to keep the game close instead of taking off the outs remaining in your game. So it seems like, in a sense, the Blue Jays could take that weapon away from the Royals a little bit in that they are the team that's best equipped to score against the Royals' rotation, although the Royals' rotation is all right-handed and the Blue Jays are all right-handed, but they're also the best hitting team against right-handers anyway, so it doesn't matter that much. So if they score a bunch of runs off royal starters then they get into a position where even if the royals are bringing in davis and herrera and whoever else they'll just be trying to come from behind rather than trying to snuff out the life of toronto obviously these teams had some regular season history in august they got into bench clearings and calling people babies and such although the royals kind of did that with everyone this year and the Blue Jays just did that with the Rangers, and everyone does that with everyone. So I don't really know how much of a factor that is months later, but it's a factor for us, I guess, if we want to add some extra intrigue to how we talk about this series. I thought Jordana Ventura coming into the ALDS was like ace level, and he didn't pitch that way, partially because of the, the rain-shortened start, which he was not being particularly effective in. But then he came back in Game 4 and wasn't great again. So I don't totally know what to expect out of him. Marco Estrada continues to defy any expectations that he might regress 
he looks like he has just found this perfect balance of a pitching profile that is really hard to pull off and maybe won't last forever, but is working well right now. And Ari Dickey has pitched great. That was one of the reasons why I was sort of surprised by the early hook is that he's pitched really fantastically well for half a season now. And I know that, you know, some Blue Jays fans pointed out that sometimes he can blow up in a hurry and it can turn quickly. But if you split his season into halves, and he's made 34 starts now, counting the ALDS start, and in the most recent half, the most recent 17, he has a 2.75 ERA with good peripherals. He's basically been Mets-level R.A. Dickey, excluding the Cy Young year, more like the 2010-2011 R.A. Dickey, which was still really good. The only other thing is that probably the... Blue Jays are not a great matchup for the Royals' running game. Really, though, the Royals only attempted five steals in the ALDS. The Blue Jays also attempted five steals in the ALDS. And the Blue Jays were the better base running team throughout the regular season. So I don't know that the Royal speed is really something that you can call an edge for them in this series. But even if it were, or even if you want to talk about Dyson or Gore coming off the bench, the Blue Jays have Russell Martin, who caught 44% of base runners, base stealers, this season, which led the league and has been around 40% in the two seasons before that. So the Blue Jays are are well-equipped to stop the Royals' runners. I guess these are both excellent defensive teams, and there's not a huge clear edge there. So it just seems like Royals probably have the better bullpen, especially with Brett Cecil out for Toronto, which hurts, although Aaron Loop will probably be back. And Blue Jays have the better rotation, and Blue Jays have the better lineup. So I'm picking the Blue Jays. You guys... I've got a question. Yeah, go ahead. The last time we saw Johnny Cueto pitch not in front of home fans in the playoffs was that wild card game, mm-hmm. which probably the whole dropping the ball thing, it's probably oversold, right? But mm-hmm. the Rogers Center is going to be insane, Yeah, you know, quaking, threatening to fall to the ground. Do you think Cueto's going to collapse in on himself, or was that just a, a blip in Pittsburgh two years ago? I do not know. It's an X-factor. Let's call it a, an X-factor. <laughs> Everyone picks X-factors heading into series, so that'll be ours. The Royals are the Royals. We're used to the Royals now. They're ALCS regulars, so we know how they win, and we know that yet Ned Yost doesn't make moves. And I guess the... The interesting thing about the Royals and the ALDS was the Royals struck out 36 times in the ALDS and the Astros struck out 58 times, which is not in itself that surprising because the Royals are like the best contact team ever and the Astros are one of the more strikeout prone teams. But the Astros should have had advantages in other areas, patience and power, but they didn't really. The Astros walked only once more than the Royals did, and they hit only one more home run than the Royals did. And the Royals' lineup is fairly formidable at this point, I think. Even though they persist in the Esky magic and having Escobar lead off, they are strong top to bottom. And, well, maybe I'm giving Alex Rios too much credit, but he did have a 400-something on base percentage in that series. But I think the difference is that like the Royals at this time last year had Omar Infante, and he was just an automatic out, and Salvador Perez in the second half of last year was an automatic out, and they don't really 
have that anymore. They have actual hitters. I guess the worst hitter in either one of these lineups is Ryan Goins, and he can field at least. So it's just a, it's a strong series. I mean, it's the probably the best two teams in the American League, and they're playing each other. So that's nice. That's what we want at this point in the year. Anyone have anything to add? Any more X factors? This is, I mean, it's it's like one game specific, um, or I guess depending on how many games he pitches. But you were talking about the the Royals' speed, and well, Martin is obviously an incredible defensive catcher in terms of catching runners. Dickey, when he's on the mound, I'll be interested to see kind of how the Royals approach that because obviously that's that's an easier pitch to run on and it's a majority of what he throws. And I think, you know, there's not so much Martin can do about that. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I mean, I think the, you know, Price obviously being a lefty and he's generally pretty quick to the plate and as is Stroman. I think so. I, I do agree that on the whole, it's not a huge advantage, but in that particular start, I'll be interested to see if the Royals can exploit that. Dickie's time to the plate. Good X factor. Really good <laughs> X factor. Okay. Anything else we done here? I think so. I think we're yeah. done here. All right. So thanks for joining me, guys. You can read Matt and Craig at Baseball Prospectus and at the various BP satellite sites, BP Wrigleyville, where Matt writes often. You can find them on Twitter. Craig is at C.D. Goldstein, and Matt is at M.A. Trueblood. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Right. So that is it for this week. You can send emails to me and Sam at podcast at baseballperspectives.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can support our sponsor, The Play Index, by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Enjoy your weekends. We'll be back next week.